When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome into the latest edition of the Show Before the Show podcast, the official podcast of Minor League Baseball as we are uh, nearing the middle of the month of November, the Arizona Fall League coming to its conclusion coming up this week. And uh, we got a lot of baseball stuff to talk about today alongside Samuel Dykstra and Benjamin Hill in New York City. My name is Tyler Mon, fellas. Uh, first post World Series week, and we have a, a resident Phillies fan who obviously it didn't go your way in the end, but a guy who got to uh, attend a World Series game last week, which was pretty cool. In Benjamin Hill, um, Ben, in in one word, how was it? And then we're gonna dive in. Disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, that was. A bummer. Um, <laughs> but the experience of everything we're gonna we're gonna talk about. Sam, I cut you off. No, no, it's just like it it hits the nail on the head. But it's just like, and I was trying to think of like what exciting word could we start the show with? And it's like, yeah, no, that's you know, if you're a Phillies fan, it was a yeah disappointing game. But yeah, Ben, you were there for what was it, game five? Game five, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's a funny thing, and, and we're all familiar as baseball fans with the uh, quickly shifting narratives of a seven-game series and, you know, the way the momentum swings can just swing wildly. And, uh, you know, after the Phillies won game three and we're up two games to one, you know, the Phillies, of course, being the team I rooted for ever since I was a young lad, um, you know, after game three, the Phillies went up two to one, and I'm thinking, whoa, if I'm going to game five, I might be in the ballpark for the Phillies winning the World Series. I mean, they're undefeated at home so far. They just took a 2-1 lead. They're a team of destiny, and I'm going to be there. Like, heck yeah, I'm going to see the Phillies win the World Series. And then uh, they get no hit in Game 4, and it's like, okay, I'm not going to see the Phillies win the World Series, but I'm going to see them rebound and uh, take a 3-2 series lead to Houston, and they'll finish it off there. But that is not what I saw, listeners. Um, if you happen to miss the world series or if you're a little behind, you know, just like casually checking out the games, just, you know, a week, People 10 days, DVR the games, like nobody tell me no spoilers on this world series thing. Exactly. Just like you're, you have a show, you know, someone's watching whatever stranger things. You're like, Oh, I haven't seen that episode yet. <laughs> it's so weird. I was thinking of somebody <laughs> finishing stranger things and then getting to the world series <laughs> of all the shows you could have said. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, anyway, spoiler alert, the Phillies lose game five. Three to two, um, really frustrating game. I mean, it was a great game. And I, I think if you're a casual fan watching at home, I mean, it was close throughout. There were some great defensive plays. Um, you know, the outcome was, you know, an open question until the until it wasn't anymore at the very end. Um, it just was a really tight, taut ball game. But, uh, yeah, the Phillies never had the lead, lost a lot of opportunities and, you know, the runners in scoring position, uh, had some shaky defense at times and it didn't work out and um, that's okay. I was still really glad to be there. Um, you know, the Philadelphia fans, they become such a story 
of like, oh, wait till it gets to Philadelphia. Never seen anything like that. And, uh, you know, the Philadelphia fans are super intense. And there was it was standing up the entire time. There was not a single pitch of the game in which like fans, everyone was standing. Like sometimes as it got later in the game, you'd just be like, you know, during a two minute inning break or whatever, everyone would like sit down and, be like, and then starts up again and everyone's up. And I don't think I'd ever been to a baseball game that was start to finish standing the whole time. And it was just, it was really cool as a collective experience. I mean, attending a live sporting event is always a collective experience, but to attend one where everyone's just locked in from the moment it starts till the moment it ends was something pretty special and not something you get in baseball very often, just with so many games and the more casual nature in a way. That's a great thing about baseball is that you can take it as a more relaxing, lazy time. It's like, Oh, what happened on that play? I missed it. Or I'm just going to get some food. And that's totally cool. But to see baseball in this uh, atmosphere where it was just ultra locked in from start to finish uh, was, was really cool. And it started to make me wonder like if, the Phillies fans reputation almost became a self-fulfilling prophecy that like once they're like, Oh, we keep hearing about how great we are or how loud we are. So now we're, we got to keep doing that. And I mean, I guess that reputation came about because they were doing it on their own, but I do feel like the more the reputation builds, the more there's this uh, kind of pressure on oneself to, to be bringing it at all times. And uh, certainly were, it was really intense. It was really fun. Uh, you know, as a minor league guy who does what I do, uh, wow. <laughs> I mean, it's just such a different environment, and I hadn't been a part of something like that for a long time. Well, Ben, we are uh, we're sorry for you that it did not go the way that you were hoping, but still a pretty cool experience. Um, think it could have been worse. My team has never even made a game five of a World Series, so you know, could uh, could have gone that way too, which was not fun. Um, but combined, we are we're both winless at World Series games. Yeah. Still looking for that W. We'll get there, Tyler. One of these years. Um, well, let's uh, talk about some things that Ben's got going on on the sites. Uh, we are into the offseason, of course, which means the ballpark guides make their return here for the 2022-23 offseason. This is a project that we've been working about uh, or working on in uh, various capacities for the last um, what feels like decade. Uh, and it hasn't been, but it feels like it because it's such a big undertaking Get us back into, you know, for people who have joined the show since we last talked ballpark guides, explain the concept behind the ballpark guide and give us a little bit of uh, of what you've been working on. Yeah, it's been a little while. It's certainly something we've touched on before, but uh, during the season, no one really has time to work on this. But the ballpark guide, the minor league ballpark guide project is to have, you know, detailed, um, heavily visual, information packed write ups uh, about the ballparks of every single minor league team of uh, all 120 teams or technically 119 ballparks because two teams in the Florida state league share a ballpark, but whatever, every single minor league ballpark uh, is getting a, its own ballpark guide. And um, so it's a huge undertaking to write all that up and get it all organized. But the ultimate goal and what will happen by the end of this off season for sure is that we'll have a ballpark guide for every single current minor league ballpark and it'll all be together as a you know searchable map that you can search and you know categorize and filter in all sorts of different ways. And uh, to really be a great resource uh, is our goal, you know, for fans planning their own trips to say to you know to poke around these ballpark guides to get ideas of what to do, not just at the ballpark but around the city, to um, you know help plan and put together itineraries throughout the season. Um, something that's really going to be exciting. So. so yeah, the World Series is over. Tied in with that, all my uh, 
sort of stray road trip stories I had in storage are, are all done and out there into the world. It's a pretty slow time of year uh, otherwise. So heading back to the ballpark guides. Had one on uh, St. Paul's uh, CHS field just come out uh, this week and uh, one on Tulsa Drillers, One Oak Field. It will be out shortly. And from there, I'll be moving on to Wichita, uh, the wind surge and Riverfront Stadium and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, hopefully getting help along the way. Uh, from other writers, obviously Tyler has contributed to the project in the past. Um, you know, several installments, and uh, everyone's friend Josh Jackson has uh, been on the ballpark guide beat as well, and hope to have him back on that uh, as time allows. So, it's ballpark guide season, and I don't know if that's pr- spelled S Z N like they do on yeah, Twitter, but say. regardless, yeah, it is ballpark be. guide season. Um, working on them now and they're going to keep coming out. And of course I will get sidetracked by more timely matters, but I think for next couple months, one of my main priorities is going to be getting this together. And uh, hopefully you, the listener will one day see this in its completed form and, you know, sort of gaze upon it, you know, with all filled reverence, almost like a religious experience. All right, Ben, well, part of every ballpark, not every bar- ballpark, I should say, actually, not, not every ballpark has this, but, you know, as we kind of transition here into our interview, a big part of the ballpark experience can be the MC, and we're not talking about just the person in the PA booth who announces the batters. On-field MC introducing on-field activities in between it and in games, things like that. Um, when I think of an on-field MC, I think of King Henry here in Brooklyn, right? Uh, the legend that is King Henry. Uh, but there are lots that go around the minor leagues. Who are some that come to mind? Beyond just our guest today, who we'll touch on in a second. Yeah, King Henry from the Brooklyn Cyclones is a good one. I think perhaps maybe the best-known uh, on-field MC in minor league baseball is uh, the inimitable Eric the Peanut Guy with the Tri-City Dust Devils. Um, you know, his name is Eric the Peanut Guy, or his you know stage name, so to speak. And he does actually sell peanuts for select portions of the game, but he is also the team's on-field MC and really as much as a franchise icon as anyone who's ever played for the Dust Devils. Uh, Eric has been with the team since their inception and uh, is just, there's a life-size bobblehead of him at the ballpark, you know, to give you a, an example of, uh, you know, what a, what a huge role he plays. Um, you know, I, I can't remember their names, but, you know, I just wrote the St. Paul Saints ballpark guide for CHS Field. And um, they have two MCs, which is rare to have two MCs who are not switching off. They're on at all times and kind of like making snarky asides back and forth. And not only that, they are set up at a table that is right up against the field, right up against the netting, just to the right of home plate down the first baseline. Uh, The Saints home team dugout is just a few steps away. So they are, you know, referencing the game throughout. And, uh, yeah, Sam's pulling up some names. There's, but so this is the problem with the Saints. They have a whole entertainment team, and uh, I think maybe Joshua Will and Brian Kelly that that might be the the guys. Um, but that is a unique on-field MC environment in St. Paul as well. They have two guys out in the stands, uh, you know, doing it throughout the game from so close to where the action's going on. Um, Sam is pointing out Sego Masabuchi, who is not an on-field MC, but I wrote an article about him. Right, uh, he does karaoke every uh, game, and uh, it's such a huge part of the, the the Saints as well. I mean, the Saints are a really unique team, so it was fun to dive into that ballpark guide, and it did spark my memory of uh, their unique on-field MC setup. But uh, so that comes to mind, obviously, Eric the Peanut Guy, and um, it, you know, it was a tweet involving Eric the Peanut Guy that I, in a way, sort of precipitated having our next guest on because. 
I don't know what led to what, but I said, we're going to have to have a contest, you know, to see who's the best dressed MC in all of minor league baseball. And I think I was just saying that I thought Eric was. And this next guest strongly disagreed, stayed in touch, uh, kept working all season uh, on his outfits and on his on field MC game. And uh, we finally have him on the show. The young professor, Matt Grafer, AKA the young professor. On-field MC with the Daytona Tortugas, also does work with the Savannah Bananas. Uh, he joined us to talk about the art and science and passion that goes into being an on-field MC in the high-stakes world of minor league baseball. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today on the Show Before the Show podcast, we have a man named Matt Grafer joining us, but if you're... Uh, Within the world of minor league baseball, you probably don't know him as such. You know him as the young professor, arguably the best-dressed MC in all of minor league baseball, uh, coming off a strong season with the Daytona Tortugas. He's here to talk about his uh, his trade and his wardrobe. Matt, or young professor, thanks for being with us. Ben, thanks very much. It's It's super exciting to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. No, our pleasure. And, you know, on-field MCs, there's that unites almost all minor league baseball teams. You have an on-field MC. It's a, it's a, no matter what ballpark you go to, people are familiar with the concept and it definitely takes a certain kind of personality, um, you know, to be so exuberant all the time and engaging with so many fans and uh, wearing outlandish outfits and saying yes to just about everything. So for you, how did you, what was your path to becoming the young professor from you know, mild-mannered Matt Grafer. Well, I don't know if I was ever really mild-mannered, but uh, <laughs> it's it's an odd path for sure. Uh, to make a long story short, uh, I was actually a young professor. Uh, I was 25 years old when I became a college professor in exercise science. When I was So uh, that's some time ago now. I, I used to be young and a professor. Right now, I'm arguably neither, but I'm still a teacher. And, you know, I, I always tell people if Ric Flair at 73 can call himself the nature boy, I can milk this young thing at least for a few more years. But uh, I, I did all of that. I was a teacher and I had some career changes that were unanticipated. So I started picking up some side work in entertainment first as a trivia host for a few years. And then I started levying my way into sports. I began as a ring announcer in professional wrestling. That was the first real thing that I did in, in any sports. And then quickly was able to get scooped up by the Jacksonville Sharks, uh, an arena football team. And I did two seasons with them. And then a few years later, I've had a pretty good relationship with Jim Jaworski, who's been on the show a few times. Uh, he is the the GM over with the Daytona Tortugas. He saw what I had been up to for the last few years. And right ahead of the would-be 2020 season, he reached out and invited me to come and be the on-field host. And that's kind of how we got here. Yeah, and um, obviously we're working in a uh, audio medium right now, but we're conducting this interview over Zoom. You are wearing what appears to be a uh, 
big league chew button up shirt, you know, not made with the little wrappers, but you know, uh, big league chew wrappers all over the shirt. You've got a Tortugas, uh, you know, formal wear tuxedo jersey behind you. You've got a Savannah Bananas uh, button up shirt, and I know you do work for them as well. And I believe this whole interview kind of came about months ago when I don't remember really the context, but something prompted it on Twitter, and I said we're gonna have to have some sort of contest to determine the best dressed on field MC. And you were just all over that. Like it's me. I'll battle anyone for best dressed MC. <laughs> so that's a big part of being an MC too. Obviously you got to have the pipes, but um, you got to look the part as well. And you seem like you go over the top in, in having as many outfits or more outfits than anybody. Um, you can talk about your wardrobe a little bit and uh, you know, how you customize it, you know, for each ball game. It's it's definitely a process and, and an expensive one. And what's funny is even I know players on the Tortugas have asked management, like, so do you guys give him a budget for all this? And I, and I tell them, I say, no, unfortunately not. I wish they did. We're only low A, so uh, there is no budget for that sort of thing. But uh, that's probably one of the reasons they picked me is because a, a couple of years into this whole entertainment endeavor of mine, I just started making my wardrobe a little more colorful in ring announcing. I started adding more tuxedos and more interesting combinations there. And then it leaked into everyday life. But, you know, I wear a lot of these crazy shirts so that this way I've got something for every occasion, all weather, uh, some nights. I mean, I'm in full tuxes and suits most nights at the ballpark, which is rough, but it's just something you get used to. But I have uh, I've built a wardrobe that can sustain me going an entire season without report, without repeating an outfit for the entire the entire season. So I've done that the last two years. So there have been repeats from year to year, but you will not see the same thing twice. And it's just one of those added entertainment elements. When people show up, it's something that's different. It's something that's fresh, something that they can look forward to. Yeah, and how much do you take requests on this stuff? Like, I'm sure there are season ticket holders who see you all the time who say, hey, wear the pink thing from last Tuesday, or we'd love to see you in this again. Like, how much fan interaction do you get with what you're wearing? Sometimes I do. Uh, you know, people will will make recommendations here and there, and I'll say, all right, well, uh, if it makes sense, right? Like, so if it's, let's say we're doing Marvel night, and they're like, hey, can you wear this? Well, the answer is probably no. I've got, I have a Spider-Man suit like an actual not not the costume that spider-man wears but a suit like the jacket and the pants and all that that is an actual spider-man suit so i'll wear that for a marvel night but if it's a night where there's not something specific going on and somebody has it i'm all about making fans feel like they have a stake in our team our game their experience and if that is just something easy that i have to do anyway that's going to make somebody's day i'm all for it i'll be happy to do that and, and with your whole persona, how much does the location of Daytona Beach play into this? I mean, it, you know, it, it is a, an area that tourists come to a lot. It's it's known for racing on, on one side, but also just general entertainment and beachside entertainment. How much does that play into what you're trying to bring to the ballpark? I think it's been more influential than I probably thought initially. It's, I think not so much Daytona specifically, but where I am, I'm about 30 miles north of Daytona, but I am really centrally located in Florida. I'm about 30 minutes from Daytona. I'm 30 minutes from St. Augustine. I'm about an hour from Jacksonville and Orlando. I'm only six hours from Atlanta, four hours from Miami. So for me as a traveling entertainment persona, I have been able to get all over the state and the Southeast with relative ease. And uh, it's helped me kind of think outside of the box on, on just all it parts of my game and how I bring the entertainment experience to where I am, including at the ballpark. So um, 
being where I am, aside from these hurricanes that are hitting, including the one that's going out on outside around me right now, it's uh, it's a good location to be. That's for sure. Well, and thankfully, Matt said uh, he's he's been safe so far through this latest hurricane, and obviously has power, so we could let you bother let us bother you uh, on a Thursday afternoon. And um, Matt, when Ben talks, uh, you know, at the beginning of this interview about kind of the the community of on field MCs, it's a really cool um, family element. That's uh, something that connects people from team to team to team. What is it like, sort of getting to meet or interact with people, especially over social media now, who have essentially your same job, but probably not at all exactly your same job. And they're doing it for another team. And, uh, you know, I would imagine you can bounce ideas and, and thoughts off of each other. What's the the community like? It's great. You know, as much as people will complain about Twitter as a community, and, and you probably hear that just normally and lately, especially about the toxic nature of Twitter, the space that I kind of operate in, which I, I kind of call the minor league baseball Twitter verse, that has been a really cool, supportive, fun, uplifting community. And I don't see the same kind of competitiveness amongst MCs that I see in the other areas where I operate. You know, in the professional wrestling world, even though it's it's a staged craft, there is a remarkable amount of competition because you're you're lobbying for your spot. You're lobbying for your opportunity. And so there's not a lot of collaboration or really even a lot of like feel good interactions with others that do what you do, especially with what I do, because there's so few opportunities available. Everyone is trying to kind of gobble them up for themselves. It's a little different in minor league baseball. There are so many teams. The fact of the matter is no matter what any of us want to do, we can't be everywhere. So it's better to be supportive of each other, post our work, interact with each other, maybe poke fun, have a little fun here and there and and learn as we go because there's so many great ideas and everyone brings something different and unique to the table. What about you talked about the getting your start really doing professional wrestling and first of all I'm stunned to hear that it is scripted. I was I was not aware. Um, I don't think I'm letting the cat out of the bag there. So, you know, at this point, I think it's safe to pull the curtain back just a little. Can we do a it's still real to me, damn it, joke? Is it good 2006 YouTube humor around here? Um, Anyway, man, just aged myself quite a bit. Matt, when you uh, got started on the baseball side, what did you kind of import from uh, the the wrestling style of what you do there and vice versa? I mean, are there things you've kind of learned in one that you've thought, oh, this would be fun to do in the other? Or is it more just developing the persona from, from sport to sport? At first, it was developing the persona from sport to sport. But what I've come to realize is that when I mentioned that I started in pro wrestling and that's where I came from for pro wrestling doesn't care that I started there, but every other sport I work for is fascinated by the idea that there's this wrestling announcer here. And as I've come to understand and embrace that, I've learned that maybe just doing some of those big introductions, that big, you know, Michael Buffer style, Bruce Buffer in the UFC, giant over the top introductions and, and setting up things like people really go crazy for that sort of thing. So I've tried to incorporate that into more of the bits and things we do because it makes people feel like a big star. It makes them feel larger than life. And and that's what actually got me with the Savannah Bananas because they have hosts. They have a million cast members. I mean, they are not lacking for anyone in terms of what I do. But being this tuxedoed ring announcer type, they didn't have that. And so bringing that and like introducing players and introducing the game of banana ball has been a big smash hit for them. And it's starting to be something I incorporate into almost all of my entertainment pursuits. People just want to hear that wrestling style of, uh, of introduction. Yeah. And would you call that 
your signature? I mean, we were talking before about your your outfits and how much you stand out in that way and, and bringing that wrestling culture to it. But what would you call your signature call when you know, you're know you at the ballpark? What do you feel like people most identify with you and your voice? I I mean, I'm loud. Uh, I mean, that's really it. Like by just naturally, I'm, I'm very, very loud. It's it's a voice that captures your attention right away. I, I noticed it in the classroom and, and really that's what drove me to it. People for years had been telling me, hey, man, like you sound like you should do this. Do you do radio? Do you do sports? And people asked me that long enough that I finally decided to pursue it. Um, so I don't know. I mean, the, the visual aspect is a big part of it because it, to me, it's not enough to just be good or to be loud because there's a lot of guys that are good. There's a lot of guys that are loud. You've got to stand out from the pack. So you've got to bring the steak, right? The the main portion. You have to be good at your job, but you also have to have something that's going to attract people to even give you an opportunity in the first place. So it's just a matter of, you know, matching the steak with the sizzle and, and providing that entire package. Well, not to put you on the spot, but, you know, it's a job in which you're put on the spot quite a bit. You know, imagine it's a Daytona Tortugas game, bottom of the ninth, bases loaded, down by three. It's a really exciting moment. Beloved star player Ben Hill comes to the plate. <laughs> um, you know, how, how do you get the crowd riled up and how do you announce this uh, sure to be uh, triumphant moment to come? Well, if they give me the opportunity to announce someone out there, usually our PA announcer will do those. But there have been times. Uh, ben, what's your what's your number? What's your what's oh, your jersey number? number? Yes, my number is, uh, of course, um, 86. Ladies and gentlemen, making his way to the plate, get up and make some noise for number 86, Benjamin Hill. It's so weird to put a wide receiver up in a big spot like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know where that came from. I just, you know. I'm such a unique guy. You're I not did. a Mets fan. Like I, I was trying to think of 86. I know you were born in 86. I have no connection with that number. I'm I'm a Mets fan and was born in 86. So I I was all for that number. <laughs> That's personally. what it was then. Ben just knew. Yeah, exactly. I, I did his homework. Just, yeah. Uh, yes, and and correct. You are not a PA announcer. You would not be doing that at bat. But uh, I, I do ego... for the bananas though. So they're like when we do the showdowns and stuff. I will announce the players. I I got to do that for Jonathan Papelbon when he came in to be the pitcher for the showdown at the last game that we did for the, uh, the banana ball summer series. So, yeah, I mean, like, and it just adds that extra over the top fans are already buzzing. They're excited, but you add that big giant introduction on top of it. And man, like the fever pitch, you can just feel it grow and, and build, especially with the right kind of crowd. Yeah. No, speaking of announcements, uh, making announcements, uh, you DM me on Twitter, Right before this interview started, I only saw it a couple minutes before, and you said you have some sort of announcement to make. I do, um, and I've been waiting for the right time. And I've been—I'll be perfectly honest—I've been a little nervous to make it, but I am actually currently in the midst of becoming an author. I'm working with Scribe Media, which is the same company that worked with Jesse Cole on his two books, uh, "Find Your Yellow Tux" and "Fans First." But I am going to be writing a book that is kind of a get up, get started, how to manual on how to be a professional host. So that does extend to our world in professional sports, but it extends to ring announcing and some other areas like game night hosting, hosting galas. I've, I've hosted over a thousand events. It's probably closer to fifteen hundred at this point, just in seven years of doing this. 
So I uh, I feel like it's time to kind of put some things on paper because the fact of the matter is there is no school. There is no training. There is no background virtually for anyone doing this line of work. And that's been an area where I've struggled personally coming up because I am a guy, you know, as an actual former professor and still teacher, I like information. I like to be as prepared as possible when I walk into a job. And it's really hard to do with something like this because, hey, you seem fun. Here's your microphone. Just go make magic happen. That's for some people that can work. But the truth be told, it would be beneficial, I think, for there to be more instruction. So I am looking to put things down on paper uh, and and have something out there probably by early 2024 where people can kind of learn more about the art of being a professional host in sports and, and all areas where you might need a live host. Well, congratulations on that. Uh, so we have teacher, professor, author in the near future, on-field MC at Daytona's Jackie Robinson Ballpark and also with the Savannah Bananas, uh, Grayson Stadium, and uh, other locations as well. Maybe all of Florida, maybe soon all the world. Um, Matt Grafer, the young professor. Thanks so much for joining us on the show before the show podcast. And uh, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think you're the best dressed MC in minor league baseball. Well, I appreciate that vote of confidence from coming from Mr. Benjamin Hill, the Benjamin Hill, number 86, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) That means a lot. And this was a blast, guys. Thank you so much for having me on today. Big thanks to the young professor for stopping by. I did very much enjoy his uh, copping to the fact that he may not no longer be young or a professor, but he still likes the nickname. I'm not young or a professor either. So, you know, I would take that nickname if it was offered to me. It's pretty cool. Um, but a huge thanks uh, to Matt for stopping by the show. And with that, we're going to move on and talk a little on-field stuff as it's uh, me and Sam, the freshly back from Arizona and tanned Sam uh was it uh you just spent a lot of time laying out in the sun getting <laughs> getting some color no it's it's purely me avoiding the color <laughs> and avoiding the sun at all times it's a it's a lot of thinking of like where can i go where i'm not gonna be burned because i'm gonna be burned in 15 minutes there like, i did see burned. a weird thing yesterday they were in a rain delay at the afl in there have uh, been a couple of those there have been a couple of those uh yeah. it's been an odd uh what are we in el nino la nina one of those one of i those don't know two I, this winter uh, our friend Kelsey Hennigan and I were at a game and there was a rainbow at like just over left field because like it was, I don't think the game we were at actually was delayed. We were in Peoria, but it rained a little bit. Uh, and I was thinking like, it's definitely sunny over there. I wonder if we're going to get a rainbow all of a sudden it like arced perfectly into the batter's eye. It was, uh, something I would expect for Florida, not for Arizona. It's weird. Um, and you know, at least, uh, we were able to make it through without too bad of a sunburn or uh, too many rainouts. And uh, there are so many things for us to discuss about the Arizona Fall League, including two of the AFL's biggest events, which took place this last weekend. Now, we're coming up on the AFL championship game this coming weekend uh, with the semifinals, the play-in games on Friday. Uh, but let's track back Saturday and Sunday of this past week, the Arizona Fall League home run derby and the Fall Stars game, which had a new format this year. Sam, give us a lowdown. What was it like in uh, in the Phoenix area? Yeah, so I'll start with the home run derby, which was last Saturday in Mesa. Both of these events were in Mesa. Uh, Robert Perez Jr. 
of the Seattle Mariners ended up winning that. He defeated Heston Kerstad in the final round. Um, there were a bunch of different hitters. There were eight hitters total on the night, uh, four for each league, the American League and the National League. Uh, but it ended up being two American League guys in the end with uh, Perez and Kerstad. What I liked about that, and I wish I had written this in the recap, and I did a little bit elsewhere, um, so much of our focus this year felt like it was on at least in terms of American League Rookie of the Year race, was on Julio Rodriguez and Adley Rutschman, a Mariner and an Oriole. And we were thinking all year long of these are two uh, systems, these are two franchises on the up and up. Obviously, the Mariners made the postseason uh, and the Orioles were knocking on the door for much of the year. So, you know, those are two systems worth watching. And then all of a sudden in this home run derby, it's a Mariner versus an Oriole. Um, So Robert Perez Jr. was a lot of fun to watch. He wasn't putting together like tape measure shots, I wouldn't say. Like that was Jailene Ortiz or uh, Davison De Los Santos or Kerstad or Matt Mervis. Some of these guys were hitting it further. But he just really got in a rhythm of just pelting the left field berm with line drives. Like he knew exactly where he wanted to go. He knew exactly where he wanted it pitched, which so much in home run derbies is based on what kind of pitches are you getting? Like how reliable is your derby pitcher? Um, So Robert Perez Jr. takes that home. Big deal for him. He set a career high in home runs this year in the Mariner system, playing at the two A ball levels. Uh, A little bit of a test for him to go to the fall league, uh, but you know, a big deal for him to win that event. And it was super cool seeing so many players around him celebrating this. Um, He's a Venezuela native, but there were guys from the Dominican guys from Cuba, um, all sorts of players general genuinely happy for him um because i don't think he's an overly flashy guy but he's definitely a guy who enjoys playing the game and playing the sport and slugging some home runs so that was really fun to see last saturday and then on sunday was the main event the fall stars game itself tyler you mentioned new uh format this year it used to be the west division versus the east division Sometimes that gets a little confusing if you're not from the Phoenix area. Where does Peoria go? Where does Mesa go? All of that. Now it just went back to ALNL, which was fun for a lot of reasons. Part of which was there was a lot of mixing of of AFL teammates. Like, yeah, that's the best thing about it. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Oh, these uh, these three Javelinas are going to be playing on this side, and three of their teammates are going to be on this side. Like, that's the that's the best thing about the ALNL dynamic is it puts. Uh, organizational teammates on one side, but they may be playing uh, against the guys that they've been spending the entire fall with, which is makes a very fun dynamic. And there were two fun ways in which that played out uh, on Sunday. One was Matt Mervis hit the only home run of the game. So he was named fall stars game MVP, uh, but he went up against a Mesa teammate and Antonio Menendez, a raised pitcher who, in Mervis's words, throws from six different angles. If you ever watch him pitch, it's not six different. It's like three. But he's he throws submarine. He throws sidearm. He throws over the top occasionally. Uh, it's really fun to watch. But they're teammates. They, they play together on Mesa. So apparently, according to Menendez, uh, he had been talking to Matt Mervis earlier in the week. Hey, how do I get left-handers out? What do I do to get left-handers out? And guess what? Matt Mervis is a left-handed pitcher. He's the he's the guy who walloped one to right field. It was a breaking ball. It was a hanger over the outside corner. It was a bad pitch. This was not a strategy issue. Uh, but it was really neat to see that. And according to you know, our colleague, Jesse Boric, Menendez was not happy in a, in a very playful way, but was saying, like, I made this guy a major leaguer with one pitch, uh, which is very funny to say about a teammate. And I'm sure they were talking about that a lot when they got back to the Solar Sox. But we're talking about this ALNL format. The game ended 9-3, the NL won. 
But since they were the home team, you would think they're not playing the bottom of the ninth. They actually decided to extend it a little bit. It's an exhibition. Let's give everybody a little extra baseball. But also, you know, they wanted to get more pitchers into the game. Uh, The NL side still had two guys in the bullpen who wanted to pitch, who wanted to get in the game. Um, So they extended an inning, and they actually allowed those NL guys to pitch against the NL. It was a little weird, a little awkward, but especially awkward on the last out when Jordan Walker, a Cardinals prospect, went up against Tink Hentz, another Cardinals prospect. Uh, And the second you could see that happening, both of those guys reacted accordingly. Uh, Walker was laughing hysterically as he's walking up to the plate. It lasted one pitch. Uh, It was a fastball on the outside corner that Jordan Walker got a lot of, but not enough of. He drove it to the warning track and right. Heston Kerstad tracked it down. Uh, But it was super fun talking to both of those guys afterwards. I did a story for MLB.com about that one pitch at bat. Uh, But just knowing each other's scouting reports, knowing like Jordan Walker, knowing that Tink Hens has a good fastball and that he was going to try to throw his best fastball and then got it. But it was a good location, which is a big deal for Tink Hens. He has good command. Uh, It was such a fun thing to see. And you could see those guys enjoying it, which is exactly what you want in an exhibition game like that at the you know, it was it was five weeks into what's been a long fall league season after a long summer. So fall league is coming to an end coming up this week, and uh, it'll be fun to uh, see what the final few days of the AFL season hold. Final few days, days of the minor league season, obviously well past us now, but we are getting into minor league season recognition ca- uh, territory where uh, leagues across the minor league landscape have been announcing their award winners uh, postseason all-stars and league MVPs and all of that. Sam, what are the highlights so far? We're down to uh, to the uh, single A level in award releasings, but what has stood out to you so far from the honorees to this point? Yeah, I'll I'll stick at the single A level just because it's the most recent one we have. But one thing I love about these awards, they give out MVP awards and best pitcher awards and, you know, or pitcher of the year, I should say, uh, which is great because that's based purely on performance. That's not based on prospect status and uh, something we're about to talk about here in a little bit, Tyler, uh, in terms of org all-stars. But I like when guys who are not being analyzed for, you know, what does your fastball do? What does your curveball do? What's your power potential going to be it's just what did you do this year um so i really enjoy that that this is just based purely on performance but then there's a separate category for top mlb prospect so to, you know sticking at this single a level this year the california league mvp was edward edgar cuero of the los angeles angels system um you know, becoming one of the best catching prospects in baseball kind of a tertiary top 100 prospect but could make it there next year just really did well this year in the cal league but the top MLB prospect from the Cal League was James Wood, uh, who played for a long time in the San Diego Padres system, at least this year, but then was traded to the Washington Nationals. But obviously, he left enough of an impression on Cal League managers to be voted top MLB prospect. He's a huge guy, has really good power, but has deceptive speed as well. And that's something that I'm sure a lot of Cal League managers were drawn to. So the Carolina League MVP, Jackson Churio. Guess what? Top MLB prospect. Still Jackson Churio. I mean, it's tough to say he was not the best player in that league or the best player we can project moving forward either uh, in the Carolina League. And then in the FSL, MVP was Omar De Los Santos, uh, who stole 70 bases this year in Florida. Uh, That's third most in all of minor league baseball. No other player 
in the Florida State League had half as many as that. He also added 16 homers, which was third most in the league. So you can see why he was chosen as MVP. But top MLB prospect was Jason Dominguez, who spent a lot of time in Tampa this year, um, tooled all the way up and, and really enjoyed a much better statistical season than he did when he was with Tampa in 2021. So good to see him get a little bit of recognition there. He also moved up to Hudson Valley and Somerset by the end of the season and is now playing in the Arizona Fall League. Like it's been a very busy year for Jason Dominguez, but what have we always talked about him with him? It's future projection. It's all five tools are present when they're all clicking. And obviously the FSL managers uh, saw that and voted him top MLB prospect. All right, Sam, we are also into org all-stars season. If you're a longtime listener to the show before the show podcast, it's like a throwback conversation. Our org all-stars series rolling out at MILB.com, in which we go through each organization and pick an all-star who was best at their position during the 2022 season. So it is not necessarily top prospect rankings or, uh, you know, the person who is fastest to the big leagues or whatever. It is different in that regard that if you are a 32-year-old who had a successful season at AAA and you're by far the best in your system at that, you can be an org all-star. This isn't uh, just about prospect rankings. But, um, Sam, the uh, start to org all-stars is always so daunting, but we really get some very good stuff out of these stories year after year. And a lot of times it kind of turns you on to guys that maybe you weren't necessarily aware of um coming out of a season but then you look at their full resume and think oh okay maybe there's something here yeah i mean that'll always happen is is sometimes you dig into some numbers and you're just realizing like oh this guy ended up as the organizational leader in home runs like that just snuck up on me um one guy i'll, I'll kind of throw on top of that pile he didn't sneak up on me in any ways but this stat stood out to me as i did the royals or all stars list this week was brewer hicklin of the Kansas City Royals. Um, Brewer Hicklin showed a bunch of power, stole a bunch of bases this year at AAA Omaha, but I don't think I realized he was one of two on this list. Only two minor leaguers this year enjoyed 25-25 seasons, so at least 25 homers, 25 stolen bases. Brewer Hicklin is obviously one. He had uh, 28 homers and 35 stolen bases in 130 games, all with AAA Omaha this year. Tyler, can you guess the other guy on that list? There's only one other. Oh man. Um don't think too hard. Jackson Trio. Uh okay, we'll maybe oh, think a little it. bit harder. All right. Uh Ellie De La Cruz. Oh, Ellie De La Cruz. He probably would have yes. been in my top three guesses. Yeah. Ellie De La Cruz had 28 homers and 47 steals. Oh but cow. Ellie De La Cruz was on our short list for like minor leaguer of the year. So anytime you are on a list of two and he's the other guy, it's a good list to be on. Now, mind you, Brewer Hicklin struck out. of the time this year. He only hit 248. Likely kept him from making the majors more. He he had a little bit of time at Kansas City, but not that much. But then, you know, talking to Mitch Meyer, who is a field coordinator and director of player development over there with the Kansas City Royals, he said, he pointed out like Brew Hicklin can do a lot of things, even if he's striking out. Like if he's making impact, the ball is going to go a long way. If he's getting on base, he's a threat to steal bases. Uh, There's a lot that he can present to the Royals. Now he's a little bit on the older side uh, as well. And I think that's why you're not going to see him on a top 30 prospect list, but that doesn't mean he can't turn into a fourth or fifth outfielder for Kansas city starting next year. And it's certainly encouraging to see these numbers in such stark terms for him. So that's one example on the Royals list. Um, the Tigers list will also be out on Friday. I worked on that one. I'm working on the Milwaukee Brewers, which will be out at some point next week. We're rolling these out Monday, Wednesday, Friday, every week. Uh, dive into them. It's, it's a lot of fun and a lot of fun giving 
uh, you know, some recognition to some of these guys, like you said, Tyler, who during the year might get overlooked just because they're not top prospects or they quietly amass a 25, 30 homer year or something like that. So always fun to put these together. And uh, yeah, be sure to check them out on MILB.com. And with that, we will wrap up this week's uh, bulk of the show before the show. But Josh Jackson swings by with a very business-like Ghost of the Miners coming up next. We interrupt this podcast to bring you another thrilling edition of Ghosts of the Miners. Now, here's your correspondent and host, Joshua Jackson. Welcome back to Ghosts of the Miners, in which all of you out there in Radioland must identify the legitimate historical ball club hiding amidst the fraudulent pair. You had to respect the effort put forth by one. The others were never even attempted. In the last segment, I asked you which of the following minor league baseball teams did at one time exist. A. The Quebec City Clerks. B. The Bentonville Office Holders. C. The Appleton Street Sweepers. You're the people's choice if you elected for B. The Bentonville Office Holders, who were on the job in the Arkansas State League in 1934 and 1935 representing the town that in 2015 became home to an eponymous film festival co-founded by Rockford Peach depictor Gina Davis, which, of course, is also the town named for U.S. House of Representatives and U.S. Senate office holder and noteworthy American expansionist Thomas Hart Benton, the office holders performed their duties adequately for a couple years and threatened to do even better for Bentonville. With roots going back to the 19th century, the Arkansas State League, after a multi-decade layoff, sprouted anew for the 1934 campaign, and our office holders occupied a spot as charter members, as well as being Bentonville's first minor league team. They held steady into mid-June in the inaugural season, going 12-15 and 15 before accepting the resignation of manager Red Wilson. Playing under Tom McGill and then Ed Hawk, the office holders offed just about every other team in the league in the ensuing months, stampeding over the Siloam Springs Buffaloes, tying up the Rogers Rustlers, and stupefying the Fayetteville Educators to finish with the best overall record, 40-35, and, and a second-half title. Not that there were many other strong candidates. The Fayetteville and Siloam Springs clubs both went under on August 19th, which set up a championship series between the holders on, the office holders, and the Rogers Wrestlers. But the office holders looked overworked, falling four games to three. That was as bright as Bentonville's bulb shone, as the office holders took a position as a Cardinals affiliate for 1935, but stumbled to 51 and 56 for fourth place in a somewhat revitalized six-team Arkansas State League. The next year, the circuit picked up some clubs over the border and became the Arkansas-Missouri League, and Bentonville tried to race forward as the Mustangs. And that's how the office holders were voted out. Now, on to the question for next time. Which of these landlocked clubs was out to sea in the miners of yesteryear? A. The Dodge City Sailors. B. The Dallas Submarines. 
see the Las Cruces Clippers. Want to know the answer? Walk the plank. Or tune into the next Ghost of the Miners. But for now, you'll have to excuse me. My producer Ben Hill has a speaking engagement at the planetarium, and he's about to show the audience the full moon. Big thanks, as always, to Josh Jackson and his legion of followers. You can still hear him cheering for him in the background on a live studio audience. Uh, wrapping up this week's episode of the show before the show, but we are coming down to the final few days of the Arizona Fall League season. Sam, give us the lowdown. I think I've said that 17 times this episode. Give us the lowdown, <laughs> Sam, of this weekend, the AFL semis, the championship game, where people can follow. Yeah, so we already know that surprise is going to be in the AFL championship game. Um, as for who's playing in the semis, I can't tell you as of this moment. We are currently recording at 401 Eastern on uh, Thursday, and that stuff is still being sorted out. I mean, we'll we'll see how things are going to work out there. It's tiebreakers that are going to be involved. Uh, it seems like Glendale is definitely involved. It's now coming down to Mesa and Peoria or maybe Scottsdale. Uh, I really like this because it, it's kind of an exciting last day. Um, and then, you know, there'll be a play-in game tomorrow. Winner faces surprise on Saturday. Uh, so we'll keep an eye out on that. We'll bring you the results next week on the podcast, but also be sure to check out all sorts of coverage about those games on MLB Pipeline and MILB.com. Uh, it, you know, does it really matter who wins the Fall Stars or the, the Fall League? Not really. Is it a fun way to end the season? Sure. I mean, it's Absolutely. like anything else. Yeah. I don't know if these guys get rings. That's one thing I, I want to find out. I'll have to ask people on the question. ground. Like, do you get an Arizona Fall League ring? That's a good question, actually. I don't feel like they do. But anyway, let's just pretend they do. Let's it, uh, let's hope massive. they do. Uh, for, uh, on their behalf, yeah. we hope that they do. They get, uh, they get, they're covered in jewels after this. Just <laughs> jewels on top of jewels. For winning the Arizona Fall League. But that's all coming up this weekend. And uh, you can stay locked and tuned to it all. MLB.com, MILB.com. And that'll do it for this week's episode of the show before the show. For uh, the young professor, for Sam Dykstra, for Benjamin Hill, for Josh Jackson, for everybody else, my name is Tyler Mon. We'll catch you next week.